0: I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book Or to look into it. I began weeping greatly because no one was worthy to open the book or to look into it. Then one of the angels said to me, or one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures And the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. And purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and, and even now to the preaching of his word. Please be seated. Well, back in 1986, that's I know well before some of you were born, but uh, back in 1986, I was living in London for a short time, and uh, I went down to the county of Kent, to the city of, or the town of Seven Oaks, to visit my friend. And uh, and so Annabelle and her father and I uh, went to Heaver Castle. Now, Heaver Castle is the childhood home of Anne Boleyn. You'll remember Anne Boleyn was the uh, unfortunate second wife of Henry VIII, uh, who was beheaded, but she became also, she was the mother of Elizabeth I. But anyway, that that Hever Castle had a great history, 700-year-old history. But by far, well, I think one of the most interesting things about that castle is its garden. And in the garden, one of the centerpieces is the yew maze. This maze, this is an outdoor maze. It was made up of over 1,000 yew trees, spanning some 6,000 square feet or 6,400 square feet. Uh, the hedge is reaching eight feet tall. Uh, uh, There's about a quarter of a mile of pathways in this this maze. It, it's closed now; you can't get into it. But back in those days, you could pay, and you can go in. and And as you walked into the entrance, it would take you very short time to become disoriented and lost. And uh, it, it was a fun day trying to find your way out. But if you had a friend. Who was willing? Back, of course, I'm talking about 1986. You didn't have cell phones, but it had a walkie-talkie. Today, if you had a cell phone, you can go th- that person go out on, onto a balcony overlooking that yew tree or that yew maze, and they could look down and they could see the whole pattern of that maze from a higher perspective. That's what you need: a, a higher perspective. And they could phone you, and they can tell you how to turn, to get through that maze. Again, what you need is a higher perspective. Well, life is often like that maze. I know that Forrest Gump says that life is a box of chocolates, but, but, but life really is kind of like a maze, isn't it? It has many turns. It has many twists. There's trials. There's difficulties. And while you're in them, it, it seems like there's not necessarily a way out. There's, there's dead ends. It gets confusing, You go this way, and you go this way, and this way, and suddenly you can't go any further. Now you turn around. It's it's so frustrating sometimes. That's what life is like. Well, Well, revelation, of course, is given to us because in this world we have tribulations. In this world we have troubles and disappointments. There are hardships in life, and even you young people, You haven't lived that long on this earth, but even now you know there's hardships, there's tears that come with living. And that's not even to mention that as Christians we live with persecution and with oppressions. And and going through these hardships of life without seeing the end, it can be frightening sometimes, can't it? it? It can be discouraging. Well, back in chapter 4, we read how, how John was taken up through a door into that heavenly courtroom. He is standing, as it were, in the heavenly balcony, <laughs> overseeing things from that high position. And he's able to help us by the words that he gives us to, to guide us through all the twists and through all the turns that we might be comforted and encouraged and so, in just a moment, as we look at Revelation chapter 5, before we get there, I want to remind you that the book of Revelation is not primarily about future events, even though it talks about future events. It's not about the Antichrist, first and foremost, although well, it does mention the Antichrist. It's not about God's judgments being poured out on the world, even though it describes those judgments. First and foremost, the book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants. It's about Jesus Christ reigning over all the affairs of the earth. It's about his victory. It's about the church getting through the maze and persevering to the end, receiving at the end the reward. So again, in chapter 4, John was called into this heavenly throne room of God, and there he he witnesses the heavenly worship of the one who sat on the throne. And in chapter 5, John is still there in this holy throne room. He's still seeing this worship. And, and as he looks at that one who is indescribable sitting on the throne, he sees in his right hand this curious book. This this particular book, this scroll. We're told has writing on it, both inside and outside. That's a little unusual for scrolls, especially in the ancient world. You know, uh, in scrolls they are made of parchment or vellum or perhaps uh, papyrus. One side was smooth, and the other side was rather rough. One side, the smooth side, it was easy to write on. On the rough side, it was hard to write on. And, and so perhaps this scroll is telling us that this book contains both easy and hard things. But, but writing on both sides of the book also indicates that this book is filled up completely. There is not one possible writing service uh, left. It's all used up. This is a book that has tremendous amount of information in it. But the interesting thing about this book as John describes it, having writing on the inside and the outside, it, it's very similar. It's very reminiscent of that book that Ezekiel was given in Ezekiel chapter two. If you're familiar with that prophecy, you remember that that uh, Ezekiel was given a book and he was told, "Take and eat." He was to eat the book, <laughs> and it was sweet in his mouth, but then it became bitter. But he said that it, was, it had writings of both sides, and what was in the writings? Lamentations, mourning, and woe. Uh, an ancient uh, Jewish targum, uh, an ancient uh, commentary of, of the Jews from Ezekiel chapter 2, says that this scroll contained what had been from the beginning and what is going to be at the end. So in other words, it contains the history of all creation, from the beginning to the end but even more than the, the writings which are uh, which is a curious thing we also see that this seal was was sealed with seven seals now now seals on a scroll were made uh, well, it was an important document. It was a document that needed to be kept secret, or or perhaps it contained some very important information. Maybe national security measures or, or great plans and decrees of a king. But anyway, that that uh, scroll, in order to be kept from prying eyes, from from uh, you know curious eyes, it would uh, they would pour out a little bit of uh, of uh, hot wet. or or soft wax, and as that wax is hardened, they would stamp on it a signet. The signet contained uh, an emblem, a motto of the king or of the, the important person that was sending this document. But usually one seal was enough. But this had seven seals. That's rather curious as well. What does it mean? What does it symbolize, this scroll with writing on inside sealed with seven seals? Well, comparing, uh, we, we go back, by the way, we need to go back to Daniel chapter 12, because this book that's being sealed is very reminiscent also of what Daniel saw in chapter 12, where he saw a scroll that was sealed... And it was to remain sealed up until the end time. And so if we compare what, what we read in Ezekiel with the, the book in Daniel that was sealed, this is most certainly the royal decree of God containing God's plan and his strategy for his kingdom. It, it was It's in his right hand, again, signifying royal prominence and authority. And again if we if you look at this in the light of Daniel 12 this scroll contains the fulfillment that of God's kingdom in these last days words of of judgment and redemption This book contains the whole history of mankind from fall to consummation. And in that, it must name all the names of the elect. It contains God's plan and his purpose for the world. It leads us all the way through life to the resurrection, leading into the new heavens, the new earth. By the way, I think this book was the thing that angels longed to look into. And as John looks upon this scroll with its seven seals, a strong angel, we're told, steps up to make an official proclamation, posing a question, who is worthy to open this book to break its seven seals? Now, you need to understand something about that question. The question isn't really merely about who is able or who's worthy to open that book or to break its seals. It's wondering who is worthy, who is able to accomplish the things that are written in that book. In other words, the one who is worthy just doesn't open and reveal the contents. It just doesn't open it and start reading what's there. He needs to be able to execute the decrees that are written in that book. Part of the worthiness is the ability then to bring God's plan and his kingdom to fruition and to pass. It does us no good for him merely to open the book and to read his contents if he cannot ensure that those plans will be done. And the fact that this opening of the scroll, the breaking of the seals, this is such an important thing that, that John mentions it four times in verses 2 through 5. You see, this is a very important question. Who is able to reveal God's plan? Who is able to execute all that God has intended for his creation? And as the question is sounded, a search is made. Yeah, who is worthy? Well, let's go find the person. And suddenly, we're brought into a great and dark dilemma. Because we're told, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Now think about this. Think about this. A search that went through the whole of creation and in the whole of the entire universe and cosmos, not one being was found who had the ability to open the scroll, not one. Not one appropriate person in all of creation was found. Think of this. Think of what this means. No one, no one, not one, is able to accomplish God's will and his decrees. Again, a search in heaven went. Think of those seraphim that stand around God's holy throne with their fiery holiness chanting blessed praise to God day and night. Those holy seraphim who never sinned, not worthy. The cherubim, we read about those four creatures with their six wings and their many eyes and their faces. Not worthy. The archangels, we know of Gabriel. Gabriel was faithful in delivering God's messages to Daniel, to Mary, Daniel, and and to others, Daniel, or Gabriel, faithfully delivering God's message—a mighty angel indeed, not worthy. Michael, we in Daniel were told about Michael, who fought valiantly against Satan in behalf of God's holy people. He wasn't found worthy. No heavenly creature, though they were sinless, though they were full of wisdom and power and holiness, with great might. No angel, no heavenly creature was worthy. Well, then let's look on earth. Surely someone on earth, think of all the great people that lived on earth. Noah, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah delivered his posterity from destruction. Noah wasn't worthy. Abraham, you know, was called the friend of God. Uh, The friend of God was not worthy. What about Moses? I mean, Moses, uh, the great prophet that delivered, the one who took the people from slavery into freedom. Sla- uh, Moses, who met Pharaoh face to face and warred and quarreled with him and won. Moses. Not worthy. Oh, well, then David. You know, David is called a man after God's own heart. What a tremendous title to be called a man after God's own heart. The great shepherd king. The man who felled the giant Goliath. The man who had his victories. The man who established his throne and, and brought, and, and, and brought the, the, the tabernacle into Jerusalem. The, David, the one who loved the Lord and established the worship of God. David. A man after own God's heart, or a, a man after God's own heart, not worthy. Well, let's get out of the Old Maybe someone in the New Testament. John the Baptist. Remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? Among those born of women, there has not been raised one greater. The, the greatest man alive, according to Jesus, not worthy. What about the apostles? John knew them all. He was their friends. He walked with them. He was an apostle. Peter, not worthy. Paul, not worthy. All the suffering, all the things that they not worthy. John, on the Isle of Patmos, suffering for the Lord, not worthy. The whole host of prophets and apostles and martyrs, not one was. And you, you, with all your accomplishments, with all your victories, with your big bank accounts and wise investments, you with your good looks. And your charming friendliness, you and your righteousness and your good works, not worthy. And just in case there's someone in the dark underworld, let's do a search there. Alas, no one worthy. No one worthy. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. John, Paul, Moses, David, no one is worthy. Heaven, earth, under the earth. And with that news, John begins to weep bitterly. And why not? Why shouldn't he? Remember, back in chapter 4, verse 1, he was told, Come up here, and I will show you things that must take place. John had been given a promise that he would see God's plan. Again, John was steeped in scriptures. He no doubt remembered how in in Daniel chapter 12, that book was sealed up for the last days. And he was called up to heaven to hear about things that would take place And seeing that book in God's right hand, there must have been great expectation that this book would now finally be opened and reveal God's redemption and his judgments. But alas, no one is worthy to open that book. All his hope for salvation dashed, squelched. John weeps because God's purpose to bring in his kingdom, a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth, now apparently thwarted. What does that mean? God lost. God, like everybody else, God is a failure. He can't accomplish his ultimate goal of bringing creation into glory. That promise that he gave to, to Adam back in Genesis chapter thir- 3, verse 15, that he would send someone to crush Satan's head. And the faithful from Adam all the way down have been looking forward to that promise being fulfilled. And now we're here hearing that no one is able to fulfill that promise. God's promise lays unfulfilled. Satan is one. And when you look at this world, doesn't it look like that sometimes? Who is prospering in this world, the wicked or the righteous? The whole world is calling gross immorality good. And it's so confusing. And it's so confused, isn't it? You, you don't know what a woman is. Who, who what's a woman? Oh, you wanna you you're born a boy, but you wanna be think that you're a girl? Well, you can just be a girl. Identify with a girl. You wanna identify as a cat or a dog? Be that. It's okay. The world is filled with immorality, it's filled with stupidity. People are are groping in darkness in every nation, rejecting the light of the gospel, hating God. It's insane to hate the one who made you, and yet men hate God, their creator. And and the question really uh, falls upon us, as you hear it many times, if God is real, if God is good, if God is loving, if God is powerful, then why is all this evil in the world? Doesn't God have the power to stop it? Doesn't he have the goodness to stop it? Doesn't he have the love and the compassion to stop it? Is God really in control? Has his hands been tied to the problem of evil? Don't you hear people say that? Who's going to fix this world? Who's going to bring healing to that man, that woman lying on their deathbed. Who's gonna wipe away my tears? Who's going to mend my broken heart? Who's gonna take away the curse and relieve me of all the suffering that I endure? The, you, you read that. Some of you came this morning oppressed and, and downtrodden and sad, and you you, you come this morning feeling the, the the power, the filth of sin, and you're just hanging by a thread. This this scroll was meant for you, for those who are oppressed and sad and 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 guilty. But we just heard the scroll can't be opened. Salvation can't be accomplished. John is, is weeping. John is shedding tears of great bitterness and hopelessness over this news. Remember how in John, or Romans chapter 7, Paul is confronted with his sin, and he's considering his wickedness and his sinfulness, and he's considering his inability to overcome sin, and he sighs out, who is able to deliver me from this body of death? Who is able to deliver me from sin? But Paul then goes on to answer that. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says, There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But as John hears that, that no one can open this scroll, Paul's praise of victory is meaningless. It, 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 and so he's filled with bitter despair. He's filled with hopeless. Ah, oh, but wait, wait, wait. <laughs> because a dark moment of lamentation is brief. One of the elders announces that, in fact, there is one who is worthy. Stop weeping. Behold. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome. Amen. So he could open the book and its seven seals. You know, by the way, it's a very comforting thing, I think, that it's one of the elders who, who makes this announcement. Why do I think that? Because what are the, these elders? Remember from last week, if you were here, the, these elders, these 24 elders represent redeemed mankind. It wasn't one of the four living creatures. It wasn't one of the angels that made the announcement. It was a redeemed person. Psalm 107, verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. And my friends, what we're seeing here is that you and I who have been redeemed, we get the great privilege of pointing other men to the way of deliverance the lion of the tribe of Judah, to the root of David. And so again, this elder tells John that there is one person in all of creation that's worthy. And this one person is none other than the lion, the root of David. Now, of course, these are very clear messianic titles taken from the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 49, verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's whelp, as a lion who dares rouse him up, pointing to Messiah. Remember Proverbs 30, verse 30 reminds us that a a lion is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from many. A a lion, powerful creature to be feared, fierce in his strength and in his swiftness, easily taking down his prey. It is is no wonder that down throughout the millennia, a lion is used to symbolize kings. And this title is meant to reveal Messiah's noble and powerful strength who easily and fiercely destroys his enemies. But he's also called the root of David, taken from Isaiah chapter 11. Now, in the context of uh, that that prophecy in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah sees all the nations of the earth like a forest, and all the trees have been cut down and burned. It's a barren wasteland of Burn down trees, but from the stump of Jesse comes a root, and we're told that that root, the Messiah, is one who would have the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit's endowment, that he would judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. This is one who has power. This is one who has might. This is one who's going to bring righteousness and justice and grace and and health and and a new heaven and a new earth. Both of those titles emphasize that God's created order comes about through the one who overcomes sin, Satan, and death itself. Now, hearing that the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome, that he is worthy to open the book, John quickly turns to see who this is. And and what do you think that he's expecting? What are you expecting a tall, muscular, regal, powerful man, noble, in his prowess, able to blow over his, his opponents with ease? A conqueror? But what does John instead see? A lamb who has been slain. That's the exact opposite of a lion, right? A lion is king-like, powerful, noble, but a lamb, well, oh, come on, it's weak, it's frail, it's... If you ever know a lamb, it's ignoble. <laughs> it's stupid. And of course, this lamb is one who has been slain. Kind of re- reflecting maybe on, on Passover lamb, right? But John uses this word slain. The Greek word it really has two meanings. One is just that. It, it's it's a, an animal that has been butchered. It's been sacrificed. It's been killed and, and laid open for sacrifice, but the other word has the idea of being violently killed as in murder, and of course both meanings are true of Christ, right? He died as a sacrifice for sin, but he also died under the hands of wicked and unjust violent men, but the point is is that John does not see what he is associating with majestic royalty. He expects to see power, he expects to see glory, and he sees weakness, he expects to see the root and uh, of David, and he sees a suffering servant of Isaiah fifty-three, one who is led to the slaughter like a lamb. But it's the very thing. This is how Jesus conquered. This is how Jesus became worthy to open the seals of the scroll and accomplish God's plan. He dies. Now, as you read that description from chapter 5, you might get the feeling of disappointment. Indeed, without faith, it is disappointing to expect a lion and get a lamb. <laughs> we want our salvation to come through some mighty disp- a display of power, don't we? We, we? we don't want our salvation to come through the weakness of one dying on a cross. You know, Paul wrote about this, didn't he? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jew, a stumbling block, to the Gentiles, foolishness. Indeed, the world laughs at this message and it is offended by the cross of Christ. You are saved, you're redeemed, you are uh, redeemed, you are filled with joy because of Jesus' blood being spilled. And so the world doesn't take Christ seriously at all. But our response is that of Paul's. Christ is the power of God. He is the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men's. And so out of all those who are in heaven, out of all those on the earth or under the earth, Jesus and him alone, he only is worthy because he died. But did you notice also that as John describes this lamb who was slain, that this lamb was standing? Did you see that? You know, dead things don't stand, do they? But he's standing. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Death could not keep this one down. (laughs) He rose with power. He rose with victory over the grave. Again, the world wants to believe that there are many ways to salvation. All religions have equal value in them, right? But here we're told that no one is worthy. And the only one who is worthy is the one who died and rose again. And and our salvation rests upon him and him alone. Jesus stands as the one qualified to open the scroll, to loose its seals, because he is the only man, from Adam all the way down, he's the only man, out of the billions and billions that have walked on this earth, he's the only man who has lived a perfect life. And he has defeated Satan. He has defeated death by his resurrection power. And so note that John sees this lamb as having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Of course, typically, lambs only have two horns and two eyes. But again, this this has seven. The number seven used throughout the scriptures is the number of fullness, the completeness. And you will see that number over and over again in Revelation. But here it means that Jesus has absolute power, absolute knowledge to accomplish all that God sends him out to do. Horns are, are images in the scriptures of power. It's the image of uh, uh, the might of kings and warriors, and a seven-horned lamb signifies that he has absolute power to subdue his enemies with divine potency and vigor. But he also has seven eyes, and we're told that these are the seven spirits of God who who went out to, again, this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, how the spirit of God fills Messiah with all the power, all the wisdom, all the understanding, all the justice, all the righteousness he needs to rule over God's kingdom in this world perfect. Now, my friends, listen, we have a picture of this kind of in the Old Testament. It's a picture. It's a shadow. It's 1 Samuel chapter 17. You read how uh, the, 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 the army of Israel is over here. The army of the Philistines is over here. And out comes this giant, this, this, this big, massive man, Goliath. And he's challenging the people of God. He's boasting. He's blaspheming. He's filling the hearts of the Israelite army with fear. King Saul and all the experienced warriors of Israel are afraid to, to go into combat with this, with this one Goliath. They shiver. They, they shudder in dismay. But then you read how the anointed of the Lord that, that small and insignificant shepherd boy, David, goes up to defeat this dog. <laughs> and, and and you know that story. Does he use the mighty weaponry of Saul? No, he takes the weapons of a shepherd. And when when Goliath sees his sling and he, he begins laughing, mocking David, you you come to me, a great warrior with That, how foolish. But of course, David slayed that boastful giant, cutting off his head with uh, uh, Goliath's own sword. But, But today, we have one greater than Goliath challenging God's people, blaspheming, filling whoever he can with fear, and, and we might as well fear, because he's powerful, he's strong, he's cunning, he's invisible. Often we don't see him coming until it's too late. And we might as well fear, except there's one worthy, one who has overcome to open God's plan, to open up God's books. Again, you look at your life, and you look at what's going on in your life and in the world, and you may say, well are all these trials happening to me? Why does it seem like God never answers my prayers? Why are we struggling so much with pain and with sorrow? Why do our tears and our sighs seem to go unnoticed? But Revelation says, stop weeping. Don't worry. Don't fret. Jesus reigns. He's the lion who has Conquered by his death, and he will accomplish every one of God's purposes. Throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus has been pro, 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 predominantly referred to as the Lamb. Isn't that because we experience his reign like that in these last days? You see, just as the kingly Lamb was slaughtered as a pilgrim people, We are marked for slaughter too, aren't we? Romans 8.36 says, For your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But but though that may be true, you have the Spirit of God within you. You have already been justified. You are being sanctified. You have already been made citizens of heaven. In this calling, of course you're going to suffer. In this calling, you're going to be hated by the world. In this calling, as as citizen of heaven, you're going to be constantly attacked by Satan. But listen, friends, listen, Christian. Jesus reigns as the lion lamb, and we reign with him. His sevenfold spirit is giving us power to cling to him as those who are clothed with his righteousness. Isn't that good news? Because of the worthiness of the lamb, The scroll of our salvation has been opened, and we who follow the Lamb, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us, even as he's working everything out for your good. See, Revelation chapter 5 is giving you the balcony view of your maze. And he's calling you through that balcony view from that higher perspective of heaven itself to take courage, to be full of hope because your savior, your king is in control and he is qualified by his perfect wisdom and his perfect power to accomplish God's purpose and leading you to glory. Therefore, my friends, worship him. You're going through trials, you're going through difficulties, worship him because he is worthy and be confident that he who began a good work in you We'll complete it until the day of Christ Jesus himself. Amen? Let's pray.